You guys can turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're actually finishing the book of Philippians today. We're looking at the last passage in the book as Paul turns to a subject that's had an incredible amount of influence on my life and I'm sure on your lives as well. The topic of money is actually incredibly important to talk about in church. Now, you may already know that. You may have a sense that money is an incredibly important thing to discuss in this life. But just in case you needed proof of that, here are some numbers for you. 2,350 verses in the Bible are on the topic of money. And if you look only at the verses that are in red, meaning that Jesus spoke them, they're Jesus' teaching, it's 25% of his teaching is on the subject of money. And so this is something that's incredibly important in Scripture, and Jesus tells us why. Matthew 6.21, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants us to understand that Our money and what we do with it reveals our greatest hopes, desires, beliefs, and values. Money is directly connected to our hearts. And so we can't say that we are mature followers of Jesus if we're not thinking biblically about how we use our money. It's that important. The spiritual life and what you do with your wealth go hand in hand. So you have to address this subject. So Paul does. Paul turns to the subject of money and he does it at the end of the book. Why does he save it for the end? Well, it's because the book of Philippians as a whole was really his thank you letter to the church in Philippi for supporting him financially. And so he saves this personal word of thanks to them for the very end. So it's kind of the last thing ringing in their ears. He, he wants them to know how grateful he is for their financial participation in his ministry over the years. So in verses 10 through 23, Paul is kind of writing like a missionary's thank you letter to his supporters. So if you've ever gotten like a a letter from a missionary or a minister that you support and, and, and they send you this thank you letter, that's exactly what you've got here in the second half of chapter four. So let's read this thank you letter that Paul sends to the Philippians. It starts in verse 10. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction." You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll pause there. Now, 
when you read this passage, I don't know if you guys caught this. I, I've read this many times over the years. I've studied this in Greek and really looked at it. And if you had to summarize this, this kind of these 10 verses what, what, in one word, what would you call this? That word would be awkward. Grammatically, this is a very awkward chapter. It's kind of weird. I went through and underlined every time that Paul like has to stop mid-sentence and clarify himself. Like he's, he's afraid that maybe they'll misunderstand and, and think he's saying something weird about money. So you have verse 11, not that I speak from want. Verse 14, nevertheless, you've done well. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself. And I'll tell you, as like a, a guy who gets paid to speak for a living, it's really comforting that someone like the great apostle Paul stumbled over his words too. He knew it was tough for someone in ministry who's paid in ministry to talk about money. And so Paul, very uncharacteristically, he goes out of his way to try to keep clarifying, to make sure there can be no misunderstanding here. But he knows as awkward as it is to talk about money, we have to do it because this is just too important of a subject to your spiritual life, to my spiritual life. This is crucial. And what Paul wants to do in these 10 verses is he wants us to understand the relative value of our money. He wants you to understand what can your money accomplish and what can it not accomplish. In other words, what can you buy with your money and what can't you buy? with your money. And so what he's going to do, he's going to start with what your money can't do. He's going to show you what your money cannot accomplish in your life. And that's the the first few verses. And his big idea is that your money cannot buy you contentment in life. No matter how much money you have, it cannot purchase for you contentment in your soul. And that's been backed up by decades of research. There's been a number of studies done. The biggest was very recent. In 2018, Gallup did a survey. I think it was like like 1.2 million people. Absolutely massive survey on the subject of contentment. And, and they use the word happiness because most people understand that. But happiness simply means you, you're content with your circumstances in life. And so what they wanted to know is how much money did you have to earn to be content? In other words, what's the connection between money and happiness? And what they found is that in general in America, so they surveyed many countries, but here in America, happiness of a person or a family tends to increase just a bit up to $60,000 a year total gross income. It appeared to them that in modern American life, when a family, when all sources of income coming in are up to $60,000, it tends to get you past the crisis level where you don't know whether you're going to have shelter or transportation or food or health care. So there's a lot of stress when you're below that. But you get up to about 60000 and they found that contentment or happiness in life peaked. And then there was no change from sixty up to $95,000 a year. No change at all. And then after $95,000 a year, guess what happens? Contentment falls. Across the board, happiness decreases so that some of the least happy people are the people earning seven figures and up. Fascinating. This isn't biblical. The Bible backs that up, but this is just scientific research. After $95,000 a year, happiness or contentment and money part ways. What they're discovering is something that Ben Franklin talked about a long time ago. He said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. I love how he says it. It's not in the nature of money to provide happiness. It's not possible. 
God designed money. It's, it's a gift. It's a tool that he gives you. But, but when he designed it, he did not design it to be something that can give you happiness or contentment. In fact, here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Actually, the more money you have, the more risk you have of destruction and ruin in life. And so contentment is not something that you can buy no matter how much money you have. So where do you find contentment if it's not in your money? Well, that's what Paul talks about in verses 11 through 13. He walks us through the pathway to finding true contentment, true lasting happiness in life. So look again just for a second in verses 11 through 13. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, meaning great poverty. He didn't have any money. I also know how to live in prosperity. He had a lot of money. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As three things Paul's telling us here in this passage about contentment. If you want to find true contentment in life, the first thing you have to understand is there is no relationship between contentment and circumstances. Paul says, none at all. I had the same level of contentment that is true happiness in life when I was very wealthy, which Paul had times in his life when he had a lot in abundance, as when I was incredibly poor, like in prison, doesn't have food, has nothing. There was no connection between income level and contentment for Paul. And I want us to pause and think about how radical that is. Because in our modern day, in our culture, we're being bombarded by messages 24-7 that happiness is just that next purchase away. Right? That's what every advertisement is designed to do. That's advertising 101. They want to convince you that you are not yet content, but that can be solved with one more click. Okay, the next house, the next outfit, the next car, the next vacation, the next great meal, that will finally make you content with your life. That is a lie. Contentment, true lasting happiness, has nothing to do with your circumstances or your wealth or your possessions. And the sooner you learn that, the better life will go for you. Because otherwise, you're going to be chasing a lie. Okay, so contentment, it has nothing to do with your circumstances. Instead, contentment comes from God. And that's the point of verse 13, which is one of the mis- most misquoted verses in the entire Bible. So please pay careful attention. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Please notice, in the original letter, there was no verse 13. There were no verses. It was just a letter. It was all there. So you would never take one sentence and use that as your life motto. You would not use that as the motto for your football team. It's not one sentence disconnected from everything else. So this is not a blanket promise. I cannot fly through Christ who strengthens me. Because that's not what the verse is saying. It's connected to its context. So what is the context? Contentment. 
I can do what? I can find contentment in every circumstance. How? Through Christ who strengthens me. That's what Paul is saying in verse 13. Contentment is possible in any and every circumstance in life. Why? Because you have a God of infinite power. And he can give you contentment and true happiness in any circumstance if you will turn to him. If you will seek your contentment in him, he can supernaturally provide it. Now that's important to notice that word supernatural. Contentment is not something that comes to us naturally. We're not born with contentment. Just ask a one-year-old. That doesn't come out of the womb. Contentment is something God must give supernaturally. So if you want contentment, don't try to get it through money. That will never work. Turn to God. Find it in him. Pray. Beg of God. God, each day, please give me contentment in the circumstances you have given me today. Okay, so turn to God each and every day to find the contentment you need in life. And then third, final lesson that Paul gives us is that contentment is something that must be learned. Did you know to use that word twice? He said, I, I, I learned it. I had to learn this thing. I had to learn the secret of contentment. In other words, God doesn't typically just give Christians contentment in an instant. That's not how it works. Typically, contentment is a lifelong lesson. And usually, God teaches us it through struggle, through, through pain. That's usually where the lesson of contentment comes. It was funny. I was looking at my, uh, other, my fellow pastor's notes. Um, other pastors are preaching this sermon. And it was funny, without, without sharing any ideas, we, we discovered that all three of us learned our greatest lessons on contentment in seminary. Because seminary costs money, but then you're going into a profession that typically does not pay a great deal of money. And so you're caught between this rock and the hard place. It's really a tough time in your life, four years of, of studying and, and paying a lot of money. And all four of us went through hard times financially. I remember for me, I got through my first year, I got to my first summer and I had a tuition bill come and I could not cover it despite the job that I had. My job had just kind of made up the tuition bill I still owed. Now I had a new tuition bill. And so I paid it on a credit card thinking, well, I'll earn enough money before that credit card's due. And I didn't, I didn't. And, and for the first time in my life, I got a credit card statement that had like the bill plus the new bill plus the interest. And I freaked out. I'd never like carried a balance. And, and I looked at my life and I said, well, I'm going to be in seminary for another one, two, three years. And I'm not going to be earning jack during that whole time. And so this is just going to grow. So Paul has a calculator and add it up. I'm going to be in debt for the rest of my life. I don't, and I panicked and I got afraid about this. And then over the next few weeks, God did some amazing things and he ended up taking care of that bill for me. And through that painful process, I learned I can trust God. Even in, in, painful circumstances where I lack what I need, I can trust that God will take care of me. And I felt that that lesson in contentment begin to grow. So contentment is something you have to learn over time in your life. It's something God wants to mature in you. So contentment, it's something money can't buy. It can only be found in Jesus, but you have to learn it over time. And usually it's through times of difficulty that you learn the secret of contentment. So Money can't buy you happiness. It cannot do that. But there are many things that money can do. 
And so money is a good thing. It's a tool. It's a gift that God has given you. And it's great if you use it wisely for the things that it can accomplish. So let's cover those. Paul lists out a number of things in this passage that money can do. And number one, money can provide for my family's needs. Look at verse 19. Paul says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we know biblically that's a blanket promise, all your needs, period. But in this passage, he's particularly talking about money. God will provide financially for all of your needs in Christ Jesus. Now, this is another verse that's often misinterpreted, particularly by preachers of something called prosperity theology. The idea that God wants to make you rich. And I came across this quote, a guy named Rod Parsley, funny last name. He's a prosperity theologian. He says he was preaching a sermon and he said, some of you better get ready to drive around in neighborhoods you never thought you'd be able to afford to live in. Some of you better go down to that Lexus and Mercedes dealership and just sit down on one of those things with all that leather all over it. And when they say, what are you doing? Just say, well, I'm just feeling out what my father's going to give me. No, Rod, that's, that's not what this is. <laughs> this is not a promise of great wealth for you. Notice what Paul says, needs. What, what Rod is missing is a distinction between needs and desires. God is promising to take care of you and your family's needs. He's not telling you he's going to give you everything you desire. And it's important to remember when we think about, well, what are my needs? Well, where is Paul writing from? Prison. So apparently in God's eyes, freedom isn't even a need for Paul in this moment. And so we have to recognize this promise that God is making to us. It's, it's a promise to take care of, of me and my family's needs, our financial needs. You get much closer to that when Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything You may have an abundance for every good deed. And I love that last line because it helps me to understand what has God promised my family financially? He's promised us exactly the amount financially to accomplish every good deed he's laid in front of us. That's the promise. God will provide for you financially so that your family can accomplish on earth all of the good he has called you to do. That helps us to to focus on on our needs, on what God wants for us. So God has promised to take care of your needs. So one of the good things you can do with the money he's given you is take care of your family's needs. Now that does beg the question, a question that's relevant for, for many of us in this room. What if God has given you more money than you need to cover your needs? Is it okay to spend some of that money on your desires? Well, to answer that question, we could turn to a number of verses. One of them would be 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And I think that last phrase is important. I think it's important, right? God, one of the reasons God has blessed many of us beyond just the bare minimums to exist is so that we get to enjoy this wonderful world he's provided. 
When you have the money to afford a vacation, to afford a house that's, that's bigger than you, than you actually have to have, to, to afford a, a nice dinner with your spouse, God doesn't want you to feel guilty about that. God actually wants you to enjoy it and, and in enjoying it to give thanks to him. We're told in the book of Psalm, chapter 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It, it is okay to taste and enjoy the good things God has provided for you. Please don't feel guilty when you take that vacation. Could you have continued to stay alive without that? Yes, but that doesn't mean you need to feel guilty over it. I think it's important to say this because so often in the subject of giving within the Christian religion, it gets conflated with legalism. And we turn giving, we turn how we use our money into a legalistic thing. If you have a house that has more than two bathrooms, you're sinning, right? If you drive a car that's German, man, you're really sinning. If you take vacations to the Cayman Islands, you are totally sinning. That's legalism. That's not Christianity. That's not how God wants us to think about our money. When you have more money than you need to survive, it is okay to enjoy the wonderful things that God has provided that money can buy. But it's not okay to spend that money on this one item. That's where people get into sin. When they take all of their money and all they do with it is spend it on their family's needs and desires, well, then you have sin because there are many other things that God has given you money to accomplish. That's the rest of what we're going to look at. So you can, you can spend money on things beyond needs and not feel guilty about it so long as you're also spending lots of your money on the rest of the things on the list. Okay, so let's keep going. What else has God given us money to accomplish? Second thing, to provide for the needs of others. That's verse 14. Paul says, Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul wants them to understand, you've you've done good in giving money to me. Remember, we've talked about the background here. Paul's under house arrest, and under house arrest... You had to stay in a, in a home, an apartment in Rome, chained to a soldier, but you had to be the one to pay for the apartment. But you couldn't get a job. You're chained to a soldier. So where's the money going to come from? Well, the Philippian church provided the money for Paul to have an apartment and have food so he wouldn't die. They provided for his basic needs. And so the point is to say your money is a tool that God has given you to help other people who lack money, who need money to survive. That's actually part of the reason that God has given us employment. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. That's really crucial. Part of the reason God gives you a job is so that you will have something to share with someone who either is unemployed or can't find a job or just needs help. So when we think about what our money is good for, what it can accomplish, ultimately, the reason many of us in this room have more money than we and our families need is so that we can be part of God's promise in verse 19 to the families who don't have enough. Remember, verse 19, God says, I'll, take, I'll richly supply all of your needs. How is God going to do that for families who are poor? 
See, there's a lot of, of individuals and families in our world, in our country, in our community that do not have enough to provide for all of their needs. Now, when I was a young man, I'll be honest, when I was a really young man, I, I thought that people were poor because they were lazy. That was my basic thought. Well, just work harder, get a better job, and you'll have enough money. That was really arrogant of me. Very, very prideful. Fortunately, through the on-ramp thing that Julie and I have done, I've gotten a chance to see how poverty works. And I've come to understand, well, sure, there's some poor people who are lazy. There's also some rich people who are lazy. Laziness and wealth don't go together necessarily. Poverty is incredibly complex, and often it's caused by reasons completely outside of someone's control. And so we've we've walked beside single moms who are working harder than I have ever worked in my entire life and still cannot make ends meet. And we've walked beside elderly people who there's just not enough of a safety net in this country to cover everything that they need. And so who's going to take care of them? And we've walked beside the disabled who cannot work. How are they going to get verse 19 fulfilled in their lives? How is God going to provide the money that those people need to have a roof over their head and enough food? The answer is us. Now, God could snap his fingers and make money fall from heaven, but that's not what God typically wants to do. How is God going to take care of their needs? You and me. He gives us more than we need so that we can give it to those who don't have enough. So that he can prove verse 19 is true for that disabled couple, that elderly couple, that single mom. God uses us to make up the difference so that they have enough to cover all of their needs. It's ironic when you think about that study that we started with. People who are happy, people who are poor. You realize that the family who is earning high six figures, if they would just give a whole lot of their money away to families earning less than $60,000 a year, then actually all those families would be happier. Isn't that funny? And we think, okay, you give the money away, of course the poor families will be happier. The rich family will be happier too. If you're earning high six figures, seven figures, and you want to be happy, and you want your kids to be happy, what do you need to do? Give a ton of it away. You give it away to the families living down here who are struggling, and they are lifted up, and you are also lifted up. Because that's how God designed it to work. When you give, you become part of God's supernatural solution to meet the needs of those impoverished families. And that increases your contentment quotient in life. It's amazing how God designed it. Part of the reason God has blessed many of us richly is so that we can richly bless those who have not been so blessed. Now, it's important to notice, we're we're not here talking about economic systems. This passage is not saying anything about socialism for or against. That's not the point here. The point here is about our individual hearts. You have been blessed so you can be a blessing to those who haven't been blessed in the same way. And so part of the reason God has given you money, and if you have more money than you need, a big part of the reason he's given you that extra money is to give it, give lots of it to individuals and families who have not been so blessed. When you give it, you become God's answer to that family of the promise in verse 19. Amazing to see how God put that together. 
So, second thing our money can accomplish. It provides for the needs of others. Third thing our money can accomplish. It advances the gospel. That's the point of verse 22. We haven't read that yet. All the way at the end, a very unusual, ironic, surprising verse. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar's household is enemy territory. Caesar was the Caesar at this time, Nero, horrible person condemned and persecuted Christians. And yet Paul says, because of your financial gifts, there are actually believers in his own house. Sadly, we don't think Nero ever came to faith, but apparently some of the people who took care of his palace did. They heard the gospel from Paul and they they came to, to faith. They came into the Christian family. And that's the amazing thing, is that when we give, God can use our money to lead men and women in to the family. Now, money can't buy salvation. That's not at all how it works. But money can empower people and free people to be able to do the work of missions and evangelism. And so when you give your money to missions, when you give your money to the church, it can do powerful things to advance God's kingdom. I remember um, my wife, Julie, she told me that when before we got married, she was an architect in Dallas and she worked at a company in For a while, it was really an unpleasant job for a number of reasons, but she took great joy each week that she was earning money that she could share with her church and then with some of her friends who were missionaries who were going overseas. And she she said, I remember her saying, it felt like it redeemed the work week. Because here's this job, and for a number of reasons, it felt like she wasn't accomplishing anything of great value, but she was receiving money. And then she shared the money with people who were advancing the gospel, and all of a sudden, it felt like, wow, this job matters because it is empowering people to share the gospel. And that's a a major thing that our money can do. That's ultimately what this season of our church has been about. If you've been here for a while, you know we're we're doing this thing called Every Knee. It's a two-year initiative where what we're doing is, is all linking arms together to participate financially for the next two years and what God wants to do next through Grace Bible Church to share the gospel locally and globally. And so Every Knee, it began last June, so about five months ago. We as a church family, we committed $22 million over these two years to help Grace Bible Church take these next steps of faith. So far, you guys have graciously given $4.6 million that we've raised. There's still a ways to go, but God is really providing through all of our generosity, and we're excited about that. If you're new to Grace Bible Church and you want to know what is this about, the website's really easy to remember, everyknee.org. I have no idea how we got that. That's amazing. Just go to everyknee.org, and it will introduce you to this two-year initiative that we're all joining hands, linking arms in so that you can use your money to advance the gospel, not just in the Brazos Valley, but around the world. Okay, so that's the third thing that our money can do. It can advance the gospel. Fourth thing our money can do, it can earn us eternal reward. You may have noticed in verse 17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That's all accounting language. It's actually financial language. Paul's saying, I set my heart upon the interest that accrues to your account. What Paul's talking about there is eternal reward. One day, each of us who've trusted in Jesus will stand before Jesus Christ, our Savior, and he will evaluate our lives. He will look at everything that we did. And it's not about heaven or hell. We'll already be in heaven. We got that by faith alone. But he'll evaluate the choices we made, and there will be reward on the line. That's what will be at stake. 
Will we have lived this life in such a way that we'll receive honor and opportunity from Jesus in the next life? Well, to do that, you need to, you need to give. You need to give sacrificially. And Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And the key is to recognize you've got two different lives in this verse. This life and the next life. The point is, he who sows bountifully in this life. Meaning you give. You give to people in need. You give to charity. You give to missions. You give to your church. If you give bountifully, the result will be in the next life, God will reward you bountifully. That's the key. Unlike prosperity theology, it's not in this life that you get your reward. It's the next life. If you give generously now, you will be generously rewarded when you stand before Jesus. And the Philippians understood that. And so actually Paul says of the Philippians, this is about their church. He's saying this to another church, a church in Corinth. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, which is the Philippian church, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their Deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Oh, gosh, that's just a very convoluted way of saying they're poor, and yet they wanted to give desperately as much as they could. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. What Paul's saying is even though the Philippian church, relatively speaking, they were relatively poor people, They desperately wanted to give. And this was charitable giving. They were giving to people who were struggling for food. Why? Because to them they saw it as an opportunity to participate in the work of God and through that to earn reward when they stand before Jesus. I think the Philippians saw giving to to charity, giving to the church, similar to how you would feel if you got a call from a guy like Warren Buffett. Who said, hey, I want to invite you. Somehow I know about you. You're great. I want to invite you in on the ground floor of my next big business deal. You would not turn to your spouse and say, all right, well, Warren's calling again. And what's the minimum we can give and get this guy to stop calling us? That would not be how you would think. Warren Buffett's one of the greatest investors ever. You would be thinking, how much can I cash out now to give to him? Because this is a great privilege. And that's how God wants to think of giving. In this life, when you give to those in need, when you give to the church, when you give to missions, you are investing. You are investing in an account that will for sure bear interest for all of eternity. So that's the fourth thing we can do with our money. When we give our money, we are investing it in eternity. Finally, fifth thing, when we give our money, we're worshiping God. And that's one of the most beautiful verses in this passage. I love it. Verse 18. I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent. Notice here the end. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul's saying that your giving is like a sacrifice of an animal in the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, you know they... They killed a lot of animals. That was kind of part of their worship service. They, they would kill a, a goat or a bull or some animal and they would offer it up to God. And, and it was a pleasing part of their worship. But if you think about it for a moment, what is the fundamental thing they're doing there? It's not really about the animal. What is it about? It's about sacrifice. Because that was your animal. 
and you just killed it. Or you had to spend your money to go buy an animal someone else raised, and then you got to kill it and give it to God. And so the fundamental concept of worship in the Old Testament is not singing. It is sacrifice. And that makes sense to us because singing doesn't really in and of itself cost us anything. That, I mean, I hope it wasn't really like hard for you to do that this morning. Sacrifice, so that costs. And so that's worship, because when you pay that cost, what are you declaring? You're saying to yourself and to the world that my God is worthy of this sacrifice. That was the essence of worship in the Old Testament, the essence of worship today. I think that when, when you give money to, to God, to his church, to missions, to a family in need, that is probably the most powerful act of worship you make in any given month. That, that is really more the heart of worship than when you sang this morning, when you gave, because that was a sacrifice. You gave up what is yours to someone else to show that God is worthy. Now, attitude matters. God says it has to be from a cheerful heart. That's an important part of it. But if you are giving cheerfully and sacrificially, to God, to his church, to missions, to charity, that is the most worshipful thing you do in any given month. And so we give because we believe our God is worthy of worship. We want our money to speak praises to God. And so we give it away because we believe God is worthy. And and that's ultimately what this is all about. That's why we gather at church on Sunday morning. That's why we do what we're going to do here at the end. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. The men can go back and prepare communion. Communion and giving are more linked than you would think. Communion is about declaring what Jesus did. Giving is about saying to ourselves in the world, Jesus is worth the best thing I can give. Why? Because he died for me and he rose for me from the dead. And so when we think about our money and when we think about communion, here's the deal. I think it's hard to give our, our money away. I mean, I don't know about you. It's hard for me. I earn money and it it comes to me and there's so many things I could spend it on that I would like to spend it on. And so it's hard to make that sacrifice. What I found makes it easier to give is to contemplate for a moment what God first gave up for me. Because if you don't think about what God gave up for you, then when you're giving up stuff for God, gosh, that feels hard. That feels prideful what you're doing. You got to start with what God gave. Because you're never going to outgive God. I hope you realize that. Even if you're like one of those high seven or eight figure earners, doesn't matter how much you give away, you'll never outgive God. He gave more, He gave first. And in communion, we celebrate that fact. We think about what God gave. So, what did God give? Well, Jesus. Jesus came. We're celebrating that in, in this whole Christmas season. Jesus came to earth. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. And then He gave His life. He gave his life in an incredibly painful way to pay the price of our sin. He died for us. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And now he gives, freely gives, with no strings attached, the eternal life he earned. He gives it to you for free. And you're never going to outpay that. You're never going to outgive that. You're never going to pay it back. And so in communion, we celebrate that Jesus gave more and Jesus gave first. So men, if you want to come forward, I would ask that as the men pass the elements, please take this time to simply give thanks for what Jesus gave up for you. Okay, let's take this time to give thanks.
The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can never outgive you. We thank you that you are the most gracious. You are the greatest giver. We thank you so much that you gave us eternal life as a free gift. It's not something you've made us earn. It's not something you've made us pay you back as if we ever could. But you freely give us life and forgiveness and peace and joy and purpose and hope and family. We thank you so much for the gift of your love. We pray, Lord, that having received all of these things so freely from you, that now we would be free with our things to share them with others, to give them to you, to your church, to your people, to your mission. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would see money as a gift from you that it can accomplish so much good if we will simply stop trying to get happiness out of it. Help us, Lord, to use our money to take care of our needs without guilt, to help others take care of their needs, to advance the gospel, to build the church, to bless the world. We pray that in every way our money would worship you because you are worthy. No matter how much we give up, you are worthy of it all. We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.